0: Hey everyone, it's Amber Love. Welcome to a new episode of Vodka Clock Podcast. Um, This is, of course, hosted at my website, amberunmasked.com, and uh, uh, all of your favorite streaming apps as well. So thank you to the backers at Patreon. You can be one of them. Go to patreon.com slash unmasked. And uh, they get things like the podcasts before anybody and the weekly cat detective stories about the uh, adventures of Gus and Oliver and the ridiculous things that we end up coming across here in our little backyard. Um, you know, we got to find things like the Chipmunk Mafia and the Jersey Devils and stuff like that. So if you love weird cat related stuff, make sure that you become a backer. Joining me today, unbelievably, for the first time, is Wallace Stroby, a fellow New Jersey novelist. And uh, after many years of twittering, <laughs> we're finally we're finally coming together and making this happen. So we're going to talk about Wallace's new book that's coming out twenty twenty one here called "Heaven's a Lie." So welcome, thank you for being here.
1: Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Um. Well, I hope you're ready to get down and dirty and talk about storytelling and what your process is.
1: To, to the best of my abilities, yes. Okay.
0: So it's my understanding that uh, out of your previous books, you did have, I mean, part of them is a, a series, the of Stone series. And in Heaven's a Lie, we have a just brand new clean slate with the character Joette Harper. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah
0: okay cuz i really wanted to talk about joette here and, and how you formed her how you, how you developed her as a, a what feels like such a real character um, i you know cuz i was i would drop you a note anyway just you know or or mention it that you know this is a main character she's who's so grounded and and real and tangible she has struggles um you know like the typical like honest to god real world shit that we go through um you you know she's working in you know from one dead-end job to the next and she's got a mom who needs care in a nursing home she's got no money left and she's living in a trailer park and i i was just wondering why you made joette who this way aside from a you know gosh, she's so sexy and striking and, uh, you know, is this femme fatale type that we usually get in mysteries?
1: You know, I think it was just, you know, a process of um, seeing, you know, what's around me, you know, um, and I've lived in Monmouth County uh, all my life pretty much. Uh, and that's, you know, and I wanted to get back to writing about uh, this area. And that was, I mean, with her, it was a way to do it. You know, there you... She manages a motel, like a mom-and-pop motel. I was a little dodgy on where exactly was it was located in the book, but I, I figure somewhere in the Manasquan, you know, uh, Wall Township border, like a Route 34. And there used to be a lot of mom-and-pop uh, motels there. Now there's only like uh, one or two left. But I wanted to do something that was grounded in the area because I hadn't done that in a while. You know, i read written a book specifically about the Jersey Shore. So, and I wanted that to try and represent like what life was actually like here, you know, what the tourists don't see and the book takes place in the winter too, which I wanted, which I knew from the start, you know, I wanted it to be this sort of like desolate place in the winter, which, you know, it can be, especially for those people who are used to seeing it in the summer when it's crowded. Uh, It's a very different thing in the winter. And I think I just kind of had her in my mind. Uh, I have to give credit to my, my editor, uh, Josh Kendall at Mulholland Books because we talked about the book a little bit just as I had started writing it. And a lot of my main characters tend to be, in my previous books, tend to be loners and tend to be fairly alienated. And part of the book is them dealing with that and where they, how they come out. Uh, and he wanted, uh, he suggested that Joette have some connections, you know, have a connect, have a family connection, be a caregiver. And then I thought, yeah, well, that's, yeah, that would complete her. That would that would fit in with her personality and would also be a challenge to her. And I was also going through a personal issue with my mom, um, who I would had to bring up here from Florida. Uh, and eventually she was in a assisted living in a nursing home and then she passed. So that, all that was very much, you know, uh, what my life was for a couple of years. And so I wanted to put that those challenges on on Joette as well um because then she has to make all kinds of decisions based on all kinds of different things
0: it was really felt um at least for me because there are so many main characters that you know I like well enough but I don't really connect to them um you know even ones that I write you know it's like once in a while it's just like well this character needs money well she's just gonna win some money or whatever um you know uh, because people i have at least i've been told that american audiences want happy endings
1: <laughs> um well, it's relative you know it's, it's yeah
0: and i i think it's what people get used to
1: yeah um,
0: um yeah you do have to beat the hell out of your characters though they have to go through something
1: well i the idea essentially was uh somebody does something impulsively like has a moment of temporary insanity and then what happens you know because you can't go back uh so in in the case of Joette in Heaven's a Lie she uh she sees a car crash she rescues the driver uh and the car's on fire and she sees some money and she impulsively takes it and then she does not um report that when the police come uh so once she's done that it's hard to go back so then, that's that's sort of a um, opens up the story because if the driver's dead, maybe nobody even knows about the money, and nobody asks about the money, um, and so she thinks maybe she got away with it. And of course, she finds out very quickly after that she didn't. Um, but I, I wanted that somebody doing something impulsive and um, that's going to change the rest of their life.
0: Right, and. Um... And it's, even though it's not a temptation that we would necessarily come across easily in real life, um, I just think that the the subject of being tempted is identifiable. Um, and like you said, it's a split second decision, like do I or don't I, um, you know, it's a matter of minutes before the police arrive. Um, and, you know, how different, that could have been for for people, you know, if you found a bag full of you know two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, what would that do for you? Um, you know it's funny because whenever like here at home when we play the the you know, oh, what it, wouldn't it be nice if we won the powerball? you know, and it's something ridiculously yeah. absurd, you know, like three hundred million dollars, mm. you know, because we we'll think about it and we'll be like, oh, a million dollars, it's like nothing in New Jersey. You know, like, we're so elite.
1: Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Um, true.
0: You know, but that's just, uh, you know, it's just fun, stupid fantasy talk. Um, But here you have, you have Joette. um, Also, like you said, it's off season. It's this part of Jersey where um, people forget about it. Uh, at certain points um and she's living in a trailer and that goes along with you know this other trope being unusual for a main character is that you know cliche trailer trash um because I've known plenty of people that you know had trailers <laughs> and it was just like nothing um So how do you, how do you overcome that and just, you know, you're just like, well, this is her house instead of an apartment or instead of saying it being like, you know, oh, where she grew up and she's taking care of her mom's house. Now you had these decisions to make, uh, you know, for the character all the way down to, you know, like to, to really form who she is. It's not just what she looks like and, you know, that she has one living member in her family left you you gave her everything like so like what does what does Joette's idea of home even
1: look like that's a really good question I think that's one of the things I was thinking about at that time you know her mother is very ill and she knows that when her mother passes she's she's anchorless in the world um you know, because of all her, you know, her focus has been on her mother. Uh, and then, then once that's gone, and she knows that time is coming, um, you know, how does she define herself? You know, who is she? As far as trailers, I, I plenty of my family members have lived in trailers. I know, I don't, I don't think there's anything uh, trashy about that at all. Um, it just seemed to be like a, a place that would be a natural fit for her once she sold the house that she had lived with her husband in, um, and then had to put her mom's house up for sale and that she could eke out enough money to buy a trailer if she's even fully paid for it yet. And, um, and it would also be, you know, there is a certain sense of impermanence to it. It's not a house. It's not a house with a lot of memories. It's not a house with, um, rooms and, and, um, you know, um, Pleasant memories. It's it's a place that she's living in this very difficult time in her life. I also think, I mean, the main thing that I think occurred to me maybe halfway through the book. Um, I'm not sure I thought about it, but I th- I'm sure I felt it. it was just the idea that you know she's a young widow. Um, she got late. She got downsized from her job at a bank. Um, she's got challenges to deal with, and she takes his money and then she, you know, she says, well, for the first time in my life, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of apologizing and I'm tired of saying no, you know, Um, and she's tired of having people take things away from her. And I think that's when she digs her heels in a little bit and that's when things, you know, get clearly, you know, much more dangerous for her.
0: Right. And that's, um, you know, we get to the main villain, Travis, Travis, and um <laughs> i just love that there's this you know this partnership that travis has and they have this whole idea of oh we're just gonna do one more job and then we're retired and it's like in every uh like you know sitcom version sitcom crime show or whatever it's always like oh you don't say that as soon as you say it's your last job then you die <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I I think uh I think for Cosmo, the his partner, uh I think Cosmo thinks that, but I don't think Travis thinks that. I think he realizes that's an illusion. Uh he knows that this is what they do, at least for as far as what he's concerned. He wouldn't know what to do if he wasn't ripping people off and selling drugs and all that. You know that's yeah. who he is. So he yeah. he has a pretty clear picture of who he is, and then Joette is kind of discovering who she is. And as she gets more empowered, he's getting more worn down from her, you know, from this back and forth with her, which is also something I I don't think I thought about until much later in the book.
0: Yeah, they actually have uh, these moments where they are stuck together. He, you know, he catches up to her um, and but then to you know to complete their missions they you know they're apart and they come back together and stuff so it could have been more of the horror movie style villain chasing the good guy forever until the very last battle but um but here they had to like come together will this work you know are you in just get out of my life you know she's just like waiting to be killed at any minute um and then she'll somehow like you said she's she gets empowered and she she ends up saving other people like here and there um so was there was there something about travis that made you want to get him so close to victory and then take it away or, or um or was that always part? Like, did you have the overall plan first before you got to know Travis as a character?
1: Um, both, I think. Um, Travis is sort of like in us in a uh, in league with a lot of my villains uh, through the books. Yeah, I even hesitate to call them villains. Um, they're dangerous people who are running out of time, running out of road, um, and so they're inclined to do more risky things than they may have done in the past. And for Travis, I wanted somebody who was this, um, uh, you know, he's a small time guy. He's no master criminal. Uh, And a lot of it is a a point of pride with him and that he thinks he's been, you know, he thinks he's been, uh, uh, I'm not sure what the best word is it for, um, disrespected on some level by what's happened. Although he kind of admires Joette too, but that she managed to pull this off, but he has no, you know, he knows that he's, he can, you know, she has never met anybody like him and he is just, he can be a force of nature, you know, Uh, and very dangerous. And um, I think uh, he's becomes a little surprised with her when she's able to outmaneuver him a couple of times early on. And so he does respect that, but at the same time, he is definitely, he has to, he has to kill her and he has to get the money back in order to retain his sense of self.
0: Do you think that, that there's anything likable in Travis?
1: Everybody has their reasons. Um, with, with, you know, they say that the, um, the villain is the hero of his own story. Oh and yeah. I think it's true. Um, I think it's a, a little less with Travis and some of the um some of the characters in my earlier books, but, you know, he ends up where he is and there's no going back, you know, he's not going to at the same. he's not going to at the end, Well, I shouldn't say anything about the end, but he's not <laughs> going to change. He's not going to change his spots at the last moment. You know, uh, he is what he is and he knows that. And he's trapped in this world that he's created. Um, and then, um, you know, there's this, this whole balancing act between him and Joette, um, as I said, as as she wears him down in a way that he didn't expect.
0: Yeah, and do you? I mean, and I think I think this is probably, if I could even imagine being Joette, if this exact scenario happened to her w- without her already dealing with the fact that her husband died um, would you know otherwise the same you know car crashes she goes and saves the driver and there's this bag of money if her husband was still alive what would that have done to who Joette is would she have then absolutely refused to steal the money and I'm curious I'm curious if that was ever in her cards
1: um, again, you know, there was some discussions with my editor about variations on this, but I always knew uh, that she would be a widow. I, you know okay. I wanted her to be at a, I wanted her to be at a place she's not even 40 yet, where she has taken some really tough blows that you know life has dealt her. Um, so uh, you know if that wasn't the case, she probably would have taken the money out of the car, but she would have reported it when the police showed up. I mean the, the thing she makes, the, the big step that she takes, is that instead of giving the money to the cops, she puts the money in the trunk of her car, and before the cops get there. So then the question is, how do you go? How do you even go back from that? You know, do you, do you call the police up the next day and say, "Oh, by the way, I forgot. There's two hundred thousand dollars in a bag in the car. Uh, here it is. Come get it." But she also knows, you know, it's three hundred thousand dollars and it's probably, you know, untraceable. And she tried to save the guy who it belonged to and couldn't. And um, maybe she can just hold on to it a little bit and see what happens. See if anybody comes looking. Uh, So part part
0: of that is also her generosity. Like she's not she's not just like taking this money and then thinking about hightailing it to the islands like she has, you know, real things that that the money could do good for like her mother and her friends.
1: Yeah, and that, you know, even a, a relatively, um, you know, not a, you know, huge amount of money that you're going to go live on an island with for the rest of your life, but enough that, you know, medical bills, as people know, are can be, you know, astronomical, um, especially when you get into long-term care, and she's also seeing people around her. There's a woman, um, a dancer who lives with her daughter in the motel, and you know, she's had a rough time too. And a little money, a little bit of money would help her out enormously. And Joette as well, you know, she has things she's worried about and that money's there and it's hard to say, uh, you know, like everybody's everybody's getting their own and why shouldn't I get a little of mine if, if I'm not hurting anybody?
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: uh, and essentially, you know, her logic is on target I don't think any of this would have happened if she was, you know, if she was married and if she was in a relationship, the one important thing in the book that I wanted to, and I, this is also some discussions with my editor and I was always steadfast about this is I didn't want her to be saved by anyone. I didn't want her to be saved by a man. And every guy she deals with lets her down because they all have their own motivations and she can't. She ends up realizing that she can't really depend on anybody. And there's even a portion in the book, a um, little digression, where she goes to Boston and visits with this old-time gangster who used to be involved with her mother. And I think, um, you know, she's she's reaching out because she realizes she's in danger. And then, she, but she finds out ultimately that nobody's nobody's interested in helping her, you know. And if they are, they it's for their own reasons because they want the money as well. The people that know about it so I do wanted to make sure you know it was not some guy comes in and saves her or some her cop buddy comes in and saves her or anything like that I wanted all those guys to to let her down in one way or another
0: yeah and I and Noah the the cop friend of hers who's obviously sweet on her um, like he, he could have easily done that you know he tries he's just like you know Sort of like trying to get into her world, and she's not having it <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but you had talked about how New Jersey and it was so important um, because that that particular view of New Jersey is not really seen very often, so um did you? Did you have to go around and, you know, with yourself or with the editor deciding whether places would be real or whether it would be completely fictional?
1: Uh, My editor leaves that up to me. Um, You know, this this is in my ninth book. So, um, you know, that stuff has never been an issue. Uh, I I wanted the idea of a place rather than a specific place. there is a mom-and-pop motel on Route 34, which I kind of had in mind. I never went inside. Um, and the place that I was writing about, which is the Castaways in the um, in the book, which they advertise as being 15 minutes from the beach when they're actually like a half hour from the beach. So, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted it to be th- that type of place and the way I described it in the book as being a place that was built in the 50s. Does, that doesn't really exist anymore but I wanted it to be this very old school place where the owner is just waiting for the right numbers from the developer so he can tear the whole thing down and sell a lot, uh, which is what's Yeah, happened.
0: And in fact, I even um, caught that the fact that you, you gave him just like, this annoying little backstory that was snuck in there if you you know you might overlook it if you hadn't experienced what we went through with Superstorm Sandy you know yeah that was so so horrific and difficult for for us for our people here um and you mentioned that this guy did get relief money for it and didn't use it at all to make his property any better, really, except for a couple little, you know, little things. Yes. But, uh, you know, he's just like letting it crumble anyway.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure that's never, ever happened that anybody uh, got uh, FEMA money oh. and then didn't, didn't use it for the express purpose that they got it. For.
0: No. Yeah, no. no, of course not.
1: Uh, it wasn't, you know, I just wanted that as part of the setting. The guy didn't really care about this place anymore. He was just, you know, he was just looking at the numbers, um, you know, and, the, and, you know, that it's just, it was a place, that place is running out of time and, and the book, you know, sort of ends with the end of the place as much as the end of uh, the stories of the characters. So I didn't want yeah. it to be, um, you know, I wanted it to be something of a time and a place which is kind of like not around now anymore.
0: Yeah, was there any consideration in in setting this at a different time period? Because like I said, you've it's such a real world for us now. There's a little mention of, the, of COVID, sort of. It's like just mentioned as the virus, um, which I think is amazing. We're gonna get to that back to that in a sec um, but that you know this could have been set in a time before cell phones and you know before some of the things that make life easier and still had it essentially be the same story
1: well i wouldn't want to do it i wouldn't want to write a period piece for the sake of writing a period piece you know especially if it wasn't that long ago you know um and the cell phone thing is like, you know, that's, that's always an issue because everybody's available all the time. So it's hard to uh, put people in, in jeopardy where they don't have a cell phone. But there, you know, there are ways around it. I'm getting a little more comfortable dealing with the cell phone situation and finding different ways to make it work. Uh, and, you know, I've done a little bit of research on, on that aspect of it. But no, I, I thought, you know, this is the last, you know, there's a certain um, elegaic quality, I guess I was going for, you know, that that it was the end of an era for a lot of things. And uh, also to the shore that I grew up with, which, you know, really isn't, you know, so a lot of that's not there anymore. Yeah, well,
0: it's not there and it got washed away.
1: Yeah, and it got um, washed away too. <laughs>
0: Um, is that roller coaster or the uh, Ferris wheel? Uh, it was a roller coaster, right? That was just like out sitting there. The that... ocean,
1: yeah. 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 I think it was down in Ocean County. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I was, you know, I live in the Asbury Park area. I live very close to the beach. And uh, I was, weirdly enough, Uh, I was in Florida at the time that uh, Superstorm Sandy hit. So I, uh, the power was out in my place for a week, but uh, I was actually out of town. So. I wasn't affected that much by it. Uh, That's
0: so weird because usually you hear about Florida being hit so terribly.
1: Yeah. And my mom was living in Florida still living in Florida at the time. And usually I was up, I'd be up here in New Jersey watching the news, very worried about a hurricane going on down in Florida, which has happened every year. You know, every one year she got hit by like two hurricanes in a row in a month. And uh, so this time I was actually in Florida watching the news of, you know, Wolf Blitzer standing on the boardwalk in uh, yeah. in Mar or something. So, yeah, it flipped around a little bit. And I remember um, coming back. Uh, I think there was also a Noircon convention going on that weekend. And coming back, I couldn't even fly into Newark. Coming back from Florida, I had to fly into Philly. And, um, and then eventually, you know, made my way back to the shore. But, yeah, I mean, I just wanted that to be... You know, there have been a lot of different storms, a lot of heavy storms, uh, which have, you know, changed the geography a little bit. And I just wanted to, you know, it, if you're going to talk about that and you're going to talk about the, um, you know, like the shape of the motel and all that, you kind of got to, you know, Sandy left its mark on, on everything. So if you're going to do a history, if you're going to write the history of the shore in any way, even in a fiction book. Um, you know, you need to have some touchstones with reality.
0: Yeah. What, what keeps you in check? Because I, I know that at least if I were to draft anything about the Jersey shore and that came up, I would probably end up on some big like three or four page tangent about what it was like, instead of just like mentioning, yeah, this happened and, you know, and moving on, like, how do you, how did you keep from just going off
1: on it? Uh, you know, it was kind of tertiary to the story, to the plot, um, but you could not mention it. Um, it's also, I mean, you mentioned that the COVID thing, the book was written and finished before COVID for anybody, you know, was aware of it as a force in their lives. But I did have a discussion already in the book about how the bank that she had worked at had cut down on sick days. And her, one of her coworkers says that, you know, there were people, now people are coming in to work sick because they don't want to take the day off because they're worried about their job. And if I was going to leave that in, I had to mention the virus. You know, there was, there was just no way not to, uh, because I was sort of obliquely, um, you know, referring to people being, coming in and being sick. And so I just added the little bit saying that they were worried about the virus coming back.
0: Yeah.
1: Hopefully that, that would happen. You know, that there would be a time when people look back on it as something that that had happened and not something that was currently happening.
0: Yeah. I was, well, I'm, I'm just like, so shocked to hear that you had had essentially done before the whole, all of our shutdowns and, um, you know, shifting life to online and there not being business anywhere. And, you know, um, I, because I, it's funny being here and trying to write stories and I, I've taken the liberty of just ignoring it and just going purely fictional <laughs> that that there would, I'm not even worried about this pandemic in any of my current stories. Um, yeah, like the, the fact that you managed to um, get this done, was there, is there anything else that you've been struggling with because of the pandemic or were you just like, okay, well, this doesn't really affect me. I'm at home while, you know, I'm
1: writing I mean writing wise or personal wise? Writing wise. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it affects everything. I, you know, I wouldn't if I had not already had a rather key uh, section, uh, pages in the book where they were discussing, you know, how illness fits into your financial life. Uh, I don't think I would have mentioned COVID because also, as I say, the book was written at that time already. Um, But I couldn't not mention it if these two people are having a conversation about, you know, coming into work sick, that automatically says COVID, even if you don't, even if you don't use the word virus. So I I had to bring that into it. Um, That was the only thing. And I didn't want to go much in depth into it, of course, because it was just, it it would have been a distraction. The same way if I talk more about the hurricanes or whatever. I just wanted those all to be elements of her life, elements of her mm-hmm. world without going in, in too much of a direction with any of them, including a, a relationship with her husband. I tried to do that as, you know, as heartfelt, but as, you know, succinctly as possible. You know, her, her looking back on, you know, memories of him. And the funny thing about COVID is though the book was written you know, 99.9% before any of it. This has been such a weird year in terms of memory, you know, Um, nostalgia for what it was like, what things were like before. And just, I, I, you know, I can't speak for anybody, but anybody but myself, but, you know, I find my memories um, in this period of isolation, I find them much more vivid, uh, my older memories, you know, I can remember things very clearly. And I think part of that is not making new, vivid memories, you know, since we're all kind of isolated to a certain extent, to one degree or another. Yeah. And so I, I think
0: that's brilliant that the way that you said that. I've just, uh, I I've I, I, very
1: nostalgic. yeah.
0: Yeah. I've like just blanked out the past year. I mean, I forgot I had a birthday. I actually forgot how old I was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I had, I was just like, no, I'm just trying to do the math. I'm like, that is not right. What's wrong? And, uh, and I just didn't even acknowledge that I had a birthday. Um, this whole year is just kind of like a blank to me. Um, and I, yeah, it's, it's a decision, you know, it's a writing decision, how much to include, um, you know, I mean, unless you're writing about an actual like contagion virus story, more science fiction or something. Um, but it's been a very weird time for sure.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because um, there's certainly no way I could have, you know, foreseen anything that was going to happen. But you know, um, Joette in the book is haunted by her memories. She's haunted by the memories of the life that she had you know which was everything she wanted and then it got taken away from her and um, and so she lives very much sort of in the past you know she's just day by day she's just you know getting through doing what she needs to do and she's unconnected uh, with the world around her for the most part and she's you know just trying to keep it going but at the same time she's haunted by you know the memories of what she's lost and I think I don't think I knew this when I was writing the book. I think I felt it when I was writing the book. But it it occurred to me later on that really it was a book. It was about loss and it was about grief and um, how you come to terms with those things Um, and the things that they make you do. Uh, And, uh, you know, I don't. Yes. Yeah, I don't know how, um, you know, as I say, I think as I was writing it, I was feeling that I wasn't thinking that. But I think when I look back on it, I realized, yeah, that was in the book.
0: There's so much going on in different ways, though, because of because of this. Like, um, like you said, grief is has been huge. I mean, how what are we up to? How, how many hundreds of thousands of people have died, and um, and we haven't been allowed to have funerals, or we haven't been allowed you know, to say goodbye. Um, There were hospitals making arrangements to like, you know, to Zoom or FaceTime for loved ones to say goodbye. And that's if they were able to to get there um, to that point. Uh, Otherwise, you know, if somebody's not even conscious, there's really, what are you going to do? Like hold up a a video screen just to, to see them. Uh, It's, so weird
1: right now. Um, and- Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. The, uh, um, th- th- that's not to imply at all that the book has anything to do with the virus. No. Uh, as I said, it was, it was written before that. Um, any, you know, elements of, of uh, loss, the feeling of loss that are in there are just our general ones. Um, it's not, you know, it's, in, in no way addresses those those questions Uh, right you know there were more you know it's a more general thing that exists always but i have to say this man i am uh optimistic i do think you know especially lately that um you know we we will see the other side of this and yeah it's been a very weird you know year um in ways that i don't think we've even really fully understood yet how the effect is that it has on people psychological effect if I were to write that book now I would have to include a lot more including you know you drive down Route 35 in Ocean Township and it's like the highway of death there were so many so many buildings you know so many stores that are closed Mm -hmm. uh, so many places that are out of business there's Um, no tourism you know and when there was tourism
0: it was like immediately followed by another surge
1: yeah I mean you know There's, you know, movie theaters are out of business. uh, Gyms are out of business. Fast food restaurants are out of business. You know, I mean, just a small area. So if you were to write a book set at the shore now, you would have to, you know, you would have to address some of that. uh, Even if the virus isn't as active as it was just because of the, you know, the imprint, the uh, fiscal and uh, imprint that it left on the area. But again, you know, to a certain amount, to a certain extent, you know, the books, especially crime novels, they need to take people out of their, you know, out of their world for a while. And Larry Block, Lawrence Block, a writer who's one of my heroes, I've always really admired him and I got to know him a little bit uh, in the last few years. He said something once that I never forgot. He said, uh, a good book can get somebody through a couple of bad nights. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly true. And I think, you know, I remember when that that was the case for me. And I know from hearing from other people that, you know, that's been the case for them. So, you know, you don't want to dwell too much on darker stuff, but you want to, you want to see the, you want to see a way through it, you know, Uh, I'm not pessimistic, I'm not nihilistic. Um, I even sometimes, you know, people refer to my books as noir, and I'm I'm not even sure that that's accurate, uh, based on your def you know, whatever your definition of it is. But there's got to be, you know, um, there's a you know, the philosopher's quote: happiness too is inevitable. You know, there's there's got to be a way. You know, the, the the sun always rises. You know, the night always ends.
0: Yeah, and I think that's um, part of crime fiction, um, and even the you know the things that are on the it's closely related, the suspense and thriller and action. Um, you know we're we're used to terrible things happening in a way that's so fantastical but um in a story like this other than the fact that okay it's it's about like you know coming upon this money um like I said Joette Joette and her life don't seem fantastical at all they are so tangible and so feel so real um it's, but you did, you brought up Lawrence Block and uh, he's also been in, you know, uh, the anthologies that I have come across my way. And I know you've been in anthologies. So I, I did want to shift the conversation a little bit about, um, you know, how you, how you go back and forth from short you know short stories to you know full novels and and how these anthologies come your way do people seek you out or are you keeping your eyes open for them
1: i've only written i think six short stories i've only written and published six short stories and they were all um uh they were all requested you know i mean the first one i um uh, you know, I was anxious to get into the first one. was a uh, it was a book called Meeting Across the River, and it was a collection of short stories by different authors based on the Bruce Springsteen song Meeting Across the River from the Born to Run Out. And I heard about this project and I thought, I have to be in this book. I absolutely have to be in this book. I will do whatever I have to do to be in this book. And I uh, talked to the editor. I would met the editor at uh, the two editors. Uh, Jessica Kaye and Richard Brewer at a BoucherCon convention in Las Vegas. And, um, and I said, I, I want to write a story for you. And then I went home and I started writing the story that week. And then it was, it appeared in that book. And then I think as a result of that, I got requests for a couple more. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is all the stories were commissioned. They weren't really written off the top of my head. And I was asked by Lawrence Block actually to do a story for an anthology of his called At Home in the Dark. And he had really liked the Chris Stone novels because they were sort of a throwback um, to uh, crime fiction of the 70s when he was, you know, when he was really batting a thousand. He still is, but I mean, he's, you know, his 70s and again in his early 90s books are great. And uh, he liked the Chris Stone stories because, you know, she was a female professional thief in this all-male world. And so I wrote a Chris's story for his anthology. Uh, and then he has since asked me to do another one, which I don't know yet what it's going to be, but I <laughs> agreed. to do it. Um, So that's, you know, and then they get picked up in other places. Um, I was asked by uh, Patrick Milliken, who's uh, the manager at the Poison Pen Bookshop in Arizona. And he was editing an anthology of uh, stories having to do with cars and highways and uh, he invited me and uh, I did one and uh, you know it came out pretty well considering and has been reprinted a couple times as has the uh, Chris Stone story so you never the stuff comes out of the blue but I think when people see when people have seen your your stories elsewhere then they make the you know they sort of make the connection
0: that's uh, I mean it's great to have that kind of impact um where people you know come to you i am surprised when it happens to me because i'm like nobody um it's like you know but it's so great all of a sudden there's something in your inbox going hey we're working on this thing they're coming and, um, to you for a reason they didn't pick yeah, your name they, out of a hat yeah <laughs> it's a great feeling um you mentioned uh, BoucherCon. i so i was wondering if besides you know the life outside the pandemic um if you went to conventions normally like that, or, or even the like monthly or quarterly things, we have a, a noir at the bar that is in several locations. Um, and I've appreciated that the noir at the bar has moved to being online because now I can actually participate and and listen to people, um, you know, doing these readings. It's, it's so exciting and wonderful. Um, So have you been continuing with those um, while, you know, while we've been
1: stuck at home? I did a couple early on, um, like really early on. And uh, some that my friend and you know him as well, Dennis DeFoya had put together. Um, Dennis is a terrific writer. And so I'd done a couple of those, but you know, it's, there's a certain aspect to doing the zoom stuff um, and doing the, you know, the web stuff is that it kind of emphasizes the fact that you're not doing it person to person. You know, I always feel a little bit of, you know, melancholy after I've done it because it reminds me of how long it's been since we've actually done this, you know, since a bunch of us have been in a room together and how long is that going to, you know, how long is it going to be before that happens again? So, you know, I've, I've done that, uh, I used to, I, I went to VoucherCon at the big mystery convention. I think pretty much every other year uh, I've had some great times there. Uh, I've had some okay times, but I've had some, you know, I've had some great times mm-hmm. there. So, um, you know, as far as I know the one in new Orleans this year is still scheduled uh, as of the moment I haven't registered, but I guess I'll see what happens. Yeah. And so, you know,
0: sometime this year we may be able to like go back to breathing on each other and (laughs) you know you know at least getting some handshakes and hugs maybe that would be great um so uh another way as you know that quote that you mentioned about getting people through difficult times um even if it's not a difficult time, we generally turn to entertainment consumption or doing, actually doing things uh, in life. So what is it that you do when you're not writing?
1: Uh, That's a good question. If I'm not writing, I'm usually feeling guilty about not writing. Um, I, uh, I, I'm not reading as, I was having, I think, you know, I think, I was gonna say i was having trouble concentrating for a long time it's gotten a little better but i you know i was talking to people and i was kind of hearing the same thing you know just just for a while it was difficult for people to concentrate um it was very difficult for me to write for a while you know there's all this now we now we sort of you know we accept this as the way things are but there was a period of time when you know the virus was spreading unchecked and there was all this insanity going on in washington and it just nothing felt safe, you know. Um, and it didn't look like there was light at the end of the tunnel. It just looked like things were getting worse. And I, that really affected my ability to, to uh, concentrate enough to write. And I talked to other people who said the exact same. So I, I don't know what your experience was. But,
0: you know? um, mine was um, noticeably the opposite because all of my jobs closed. So all of a sudden, this other big part of my life was not there, and I filled it with like writing instead. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it it was kind of the opposite for me in, in for that regard. Um, otherwise, I was just as depressed as everybody else. I I didn't leave the house. I didn't want to go anywhere. Um, I'm fortunate that other people will do things like food shopping because I hate it um and I would stay home just you know (laughs) what's in my queue to watch next you know burn through season after season of shows um yeah that's a lot of tv watching
1: (laughs) yeah that's that's been um um yeah, Netflix has had quite a, quite a boon out of all this. Yeah, I'm sure.
0: Um, recently, though, you know, as, as things are starting to normalize, um, uh, I did, I, I finished um, this book, another book by D.P. Lyle, who's a doctor, and he writes books and a, and a blog about um, forensics. So yeah. I, I got through a monstrous book. Um, it was basically like reading a textbook, but um more enjoyable like a more enjoyable textbook if that makes sense so it took me uh, it took me a long time to get through it like two months maybe to get through it um but you know reading about blood spatters and
1: um, oh yeah so you're trying you know. to cheer yourself up okay
0: yeah. yeah i know right like this is you know, it's like, how many, how many forensics books can you read that are filled with, um, like, stickies of, oh, I got to remember this, oh, I got to put this one in, and this is going to, you know, I can write it, write something about that. Um, you know, just like simple, simple things, like, you know, the databases uh, that fingerprints go into, or the DNA databases, and how things on TV look so simple, but yet none of those systems are really linked together, so... Um, yeah. It's like, yeah, I mean, on TV, the, the good guys always win or whatever. But uh, in real life, it's like, no, they really only checked like their state one. And, you know, this criminal yeah. is yeah. <laughs> way off somewhere else. Um, so that's, yeah, that's where my <laughs> my pandemic reading has just been a, a, a mostly reading disgusting stuff. Well, whatever you know, works, you know, yeah. whatever, whatever awesome. works all about autopsies. That was like the early chapter too. And I was just like, <laughs> like, yeah, you know, you know, when you can like smell the dead body coming through the pages.
1: Oh, yeah. That's, that's a, it's a marketing device.
0: Yeah. Oh, gross. Um, so, okay. So, uh, is there any other things that you have going on that you can talk about?
1: Well, you know, I'm always working on something. I'm working on something now. Um, I don't always see things through sometimes. And I've discussed this with other people, too. And I don't think it's that uncommon. Um, After I finished Heaven's a Lie, uh, I felt like the well was kind of dry. And um, I, I went back to some stuff. And I actually wrote about 170 pages of something, which I then discarded.
0: Oh, that must have hurt. I had
1: to, I had to write them to to find my way through some, you know, the things I was thinking about. But then, uh, I, you know, I, I stopped. It just didn't didn't feel. It didn't like, didn't feel right. Didn't feel like it was going in the right direction. Um, it, it just didn't feel realistic enough. Uh, and uh, you know. I, it's hard to say sometimes you run into roadblocks that you can push through because it's just some sort of mental weird mental thing going on or a lack of confidence or something that'll screw you up. Uh, And then sometimes there's things that you really should stop, you know, that really don't need to go further. And I think that, I think you realize that I, I think it's, it can be clear to you. Uh, once you, you know, you're more sensitive to that type of thing. Um, I have abandoned stuff in the past. I did abandon a book back in 2005 or so. Uh, it hurts, but sometimes you got to do that to pursue something else. It's like anything else. Sometimes, uh, yeah. Sometimes you have to go through a relationship and take some lumps in order to know the things that you need to know for the next one. You know, to make that work. So um, it's all kind of. Um, it's all kind of tied up and I think confidence is is a big part of it especially I worked at you know newspapers for 23 years including 13 years at the Star Ledger the state's largest paper and I worked with people every day you know I had feedback every day you know I was editing uh, there I was working with writers uh, and so there was you know stuff going on every day in the writing that's not the case you don't have that you know, sometimes you go for months without anybody seeing anything you've written. And that can be a, a crisis of confidence. They really can.
0: How do you feel um, thinking about these things that we shelve and we put away that nobody's ever, in, we don't intend anybody to see. How do you feel about it when stuff is released after a creator's death, like Harper Lee's um I know. Even after Prince died, suddenly there, you know, there was more Prince music. And I mean, I think Tupac Shakur has put out more albums after his death than uh, than while he was living. Um, how do do you feel that that's too invasive and shouldn't be done, or do you think that you know, well, it's okay, they're dead. <laughs>
1: I actually feel differently about it now than I used to. I used to think that if there's an artist that you really admire and there's an artist who's great, everything of theirs should be out there, whether it's an unfinished song or whatever. Uh, I don't really think that now, because when I think of the stuff that I put aside and decided not to do anything with, I don't want anybody to read that, you know, because in in most cases, it sucks. And, you know, I, I wouldn't want that to be compared to something else that I'd written, which was finished and polished. Um, I, you know, I don't, you know, there was a long, there was a long period of time to use the Springsteen analogy again, between 1975 and 1978, where he did not have an album out. There was no new music from him at all for three years, but there were a lot of bootlegs that were coming out. And, uh, you know, some of that was great stuff. Same thing happened with the Beatles and a whole bunch of other people. Uh, some of that was great stuff and i and i eagerly listened and bought that stuff just because there was such a a period of time where there there was nothing new by springsteen available and uh so at that time i was you know gung-ho on that and i guess to a certain extent i think with especially musical artists um they uh you know when there is nothing coming uh then, uh, you know, this, this stuff does have worth. But, you know, as, as far as my stuff is concerned, I don't want anybody to read any of that. There's nothing that I've done that I've put aside and said, you know, I'll do something with this someday. I really, when, once you move on, I think you move on.
0: Okay. So you don't have plans of like, well, I know that there's this other person who writes and gets me as well. They could finish it for me. Forget what the heck was I reading. Um, oh well, it's probably because I'm I just started reading a a, a book for for review purposes, um, about near death experiences. <laughs> so it's probably like why I just keep thinking about yeah. this stuff right now. Um yeah, so sometimes like there's uh, you know, someone else puts out um Agatha Christie. They are they're allowed to play in Agatha Christie's worlds because i guess the publisher thinks well they have enough connection to the characters in the world that uh their writing is okay I don't know. That yeah would, i mean that would, yeah uh, it's turning somebody, somebody into a brand it's you know it's like you're not well, a person like, anymore
1: well you they they are a brand already, or they wouldn't even consider, yes. you know, continuing right. it. Um, my a good friend of mine, Ace Atkins writes the Robert B. Parker Spencer series. He's taken over that series and uh, he does a great job. And uh, you know, he's, he's, his Spencer books are better than the last couple of Spencer books that Parker wrote, you know, uh, cause Parker was kind of running out of steam. Uh, so Ace brought a new life to that series and for people who you know really want a Robert B. Parker Spencer book, I mean Ace's Ace's got it. You know, he's he's got your he's got got you covered right there. Yeah, so see, I, in comic in comics, people. they just keep yeah,
0: comics they just keep putting stuff out. It's just like okay,
1: they get the rights and yeah, yeah which is a you know which is a a very solid business decision. Uh, I don't know, I haven't really read anything that you know that they get you know james bond novels they get a new continuation author like every year mm-hmm. and they're all very different styles and i don't think i've read one of those that i thought you know felt like of a piece with the infamy the original infamy novels so i'm not necessarily uh drawn to that uh, you know there are certain characters that if somebody were to want to revive them and it was something that i really uh felt connected to and felt like i could do a good job with i would throw my hat in the ring
0: okay yeah and it's funny because like um you know every once in a while fan fiction gets um sullied by um you know, just reputation in the internet. And everybody's like, hey, look, you know, what one person calls fan fiction, another person calls their pitch. And that's exactly what it is. You know, it's like, yeah, you you call it Batman fan fiction. I call it my Batman pitch. (laughs) uh,
1: You always start by imitating, you know, every writer starts by imitating somebody else. It's the same thing with singers. You, You start by imitating somebody else and then you find your own voice. Hopefully you find your own voice. Uh, but you always start by imitating. There's no way around that. And um, I have tons of notebooks here that, like, I can't get rid of. But they, you know, there's stuff going back to like high school in these notebooks. And you know, some of them were attempts for me to write fiction, and I, and they're horribly embarrassing to look at now. But <laughs> you had to, you know, you had to kind of do that to kind of find your way through it. Even like, if, same as if you were playing a sport, you know, you'd have to find your way through, you know, the equipment and philosophy of it and all that. Um, So I think everybody starts with imitations, but then you got to, you got to move away from that, you know, because if you're really staying in a position where you're happy and you're comfortable and you really feel like, you know, what you're doing, you're probably not performing at the level you should be. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so with words of wisdom like that, where can people on the internet find out more about you and follow you and uh, keep up to date with releases like the, when Heaven's Alive is finally out?
1: Well, I can't speak for a wisdom aspect of it, but uh, <laughs> I, do have a, I do have a website, blah, 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 I'm on Facebook and Twitter, uh, less Facebook recently, more Twitter. Uh, Mulholland Books has a you know website and I'm on uh, and they're publishing, they're a division of Little Brown they're the crime division of Little Brown and they're coming out uh, the book will be out April 6th and uh, Mulholland's great I mean they have some great people um, you know George Pelicanos is, is one of their writers uh, uh, they, they're just full of great people and I'm really happy to be part of that and my editor Josh Kendall is, has been great um, he's kind of you know, drawn me out in some ways, and um, you know recognizing some things. I go back to for comfort, and uh, you know he's 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 helped me think differently about some things. So Holland will put out Heaven's a Lie on uh, April sixth, and uh, it'll be my first book actually in like two and a half years. So it's a uh, you know it's it's a it's a big thing. I'm always now I got a nice. You know, got a couple nice reviews so far, but it's always a very nervous making period before the book's actually out.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, Mulholland does put out great books. Um, I love that they're on NetGalley, and, um, you know, you and a couple other people I know get to work, you know, under that imprint. It's wonderful. That's a great team. Um, Yeah, great team uh so for me if you guys don't know already you can follow me on twitter at elizabeth amber and instagram is amber on patreon.com slash amber on the show notes for this will also be at amberonmast.com and um so thank you wallace scroby i'm so glad we finally got to connect thank you amber appreciate it